old pilot's plane tails. A late night flight, please. As you may know, New York has a special place in my heart. So I was delighted when Liz Piper, one of our Canadian listeners, told me about this story. Go to a cocktail bar in uptown New York and ask for a late night flight. And the chances are that your mixologist won't have heard of it, nor of the feats of flying that brought about the concoction. But I wonder if the quiet Joe Gillespie of an early plain tale, who mixed drinks for the first men on the moon, would tap his nose and say, A late night flight, sir, coming right up. It was actually assembled by Danny Beeson of the New Leaf Bar, which still exists and is located in a 1930s slate and fieldstone cottage tucked away in Upper Manhattan's Fort Tyron Park. The Michelin Guide describes the restaurant's stone walls and arched windows as lovely and suggests lunch out on the flagstone terrace with stunning unparalleled views of the dramatic palisades. The late-night flight cocktail consists of half an ounce of couleur, one and a half ounces of vodka, half an ounce of chambord, five blackberries, one egg white and a dash of simple syrup. Pour the couleur into the base of a cocktail glass. In a separate mixing glass, muddle the blackberries, add the chambord and one ounce of the vodka. Shake this with ice and then strain carefully into a layer over the couleur. In another mixing glass, shake the egg white, syrup and the remaining half an ounce of vodka without ice to create an emulsion. Layer the foam on the top to finish off the cocktail. The origins of the drink go back to the 50s, 1956 to be precise, and an unremarkable New York steam fitter called Tommy Fitzpatrick, who was drinking in a bar on St. Nicholas Avenue, near 191st Street. Fitzpatrick was from a generation of hard-working, hard-drinking men who had fought in a world war. Indeed, Fitz was a U.S. Marine who served in the Pacific Theatre and again in the Army during the Korean War, where he was wounded. A native of Washington Heights, he now lived in New Jersey, but still hung out with his old friends. Fred Hartling remembered Fitz well, as he was a friend of Fred's older brother. He recalled that he was a charismatic, adventurous type, who would butter up his mother to let him sleep over at the Hartling's apartment and convince her to let Pat go out to the bars. Tommy had his crazy side, he said. The whole group of them, my brother's friends, were a wild bunch. It was the end of a night's drinking. Indeed, it was now in the wee hours of September the 30th that the wild bunch left a tavern to head home. No one is quite sure how the challenge came about, but a bet resulted. As they weaved down the road, Tommy bet one of his drunken buddies that he could get back to the bar from New Jersey in only 15 minutes. 
Of course, the journey was impossible, even by car on the quiet streets of the 1950s, so the bet was eagerly accepted. Tommy, however, had a trick up his sleeve, and in a classic hold-my-beer moment, he travelled quickly out to Teterboro Airport. It was here that, after the war, we believe he had learned to fly. Making for the Teterboro School of Aeronautics, Tommy found an aircraft to borrow. From the photographic evidence, it appears to have been a super cub, a good choice for the antics that were about to be performed. At around 3am and without any lights, Tommy Fitz started the little lycoming engine and in a fog of alcoholic fumes taxied out to the runway. Since learning about this story, I wonder if at this point he had any doubts, but as you will realise when the story concludes, I think not. Opening up the throttle, Tommy eased the little tail dragger up off the grass and into what I hope was a moonlit sky. Apparently it is reported that his initial intention was to fly to a field at George Washington High School, just a few blocks from the tavern he had recently left, and a mere six miles east of Teterboro. Indeed, the Jacob K. Javits Athletic Field still exists, surrounded by Fort George Avenue. However, On the night in question, the field wasn't lit and it was too dark to find. Instead, the brightly lit streets of the city looked much more inviting, so the intoxicated Tommy weaved his way through buildings, streetlights, signposts, parked cars, and, presumably, his equally drunk but gobsmacked drinking buddies, neatly onto St. Nicholas Avenue, stopping at the intersection of 191st Street, right in front of the bar where he had been drinking. St Nicholas, I might point out, is the patron saint of thieves, so perhaps he had an extra hand on the controls. Of course, a plane landing in the middle of a street in Manhattan was bound to get noticed, and the cops were called. And surprise landings always make the headlines no less in 1956 than today. This drunken feat was covered in the New York Times, described as a fine landing, and reported that it had been widely called a feat of aeronautics. Sam Garcia, who was a child, saw the plane resting on the street and said, If it happened today, they would call him a terrorist, lock him up and throw away the key. Indeed, Tommy was charged with grand larceny, but since the aircraft hadn't even been scratched, the owner refused to press charges. However, with remarkable forethought by New York's founding fathers, a city ordinance specifically prohibited the landing of planes on its streets. Tommy was fined $100 and had his pilot's license suspended for six months. The aircraft had its wings unbolted and was gently towed back to its home at Teterboro. That might have been the end of the story, but Fitzpatrick was nothing if not consistent. 
It was two years later when the boys in blue were again standing beside an aircraft, this time at the intersection of Amsterdam and 187th Street, in front of a Yeshiva University building. Tommy had indeed borrowed another aircraft, this time after a patron of the bar he was in refused to believe that he had done it the first time. He was seen leaving the aircraft wearing a grey suit, and the police, remembering the incident two years before, visited him to see if he had anything to do with this one. Not keen to admit it, Fitz ultimately confessed after it was revealed that witnesses had seen him exit the aircraft and run off. This time the authorities weren't as forgiving as they had been previously. The magistrate, Judge Reuben Levy, threw the book at him, saying, Had you been properly jolted then, it's possible this would not have occurred a second time. He accused Fitzpatrick of having come down like a marauder from the skies. The 28-year-old was sentenced to six months in prison for transporting stolen property. After the second flight, Fitzpatrick told the police that he had held a pilot's license but that it had been suspended after his first flight and he had never renewed it because I didn't want to fly again. He later succinctly summed up his decision-making paradigm in choosing to perform the feat again, stating, It's the lousy drink. I hope he wasn't referring to the cocktail invented in his honour. Tommy Fitzpatrick died in 2009 at the age of 79. He worked as a steam fitter with local number 638 of New York City for 51 years. After retirement, he became a member of the Township of Washington Golden Seniors, Our Lady of Good Counsel and the China Marines Organization. Despite his escapades, he remained married for 51 years and had three sons. I suspect that the late-night flight might have been just a bit fancy for the tastes of Tommy Fitz, but perhaps I'm doing him an injustice. If made right, the cocktail should remind you, in a slightly poetic way, of the layers in the night sky over the amazing city of New York, topped with the fluffy white clouds through which Fitzpatrick piloted his way to fame and prison. To be on the safe side, the drink should be sipped and enjoyed far away from any enticing airfields. I, for one, will be making a special visit to the New Leaf Bar the very next time I am in Manhattan to see if they can still concoct the spirit of Tommy's reckless but remarkable flights. <laughs>